Well, it's great to be with you today. Um, it is my passion. I'm not necessarily uh, an expert in anything. I just love uh, learning, and, and uh, in turn, I love sharing. Um, in October of 2017, my wife and I had opportunity to go to the Ark in northern Kentucky, and it's so close to you guys, I imagine there's been quite a few that have been there, but we had a good time. It was a place that has uh, lots of displays and lots of interesting information, but sort of like today, we were on the edge of a hurricane, and the weather was raining so hard I didn't want to take my camera out, so I didn't get any pictures uh, from the outside of the ark. It was a good day to be inside the ark. <clears throat> but this is a picture I pulled off the internet during the construction phase of the ark. Here is another picture, and if you notice uh, that white, small white rectangular thing there, that's a full-size uh, trailer from a big rig tra uh, tractor trailer. Um, so you can tell that the ark is something pretty immense. And that door in the side of the ark is big enough for a giraffe to go through. And on the inside, you will see my wife and I standing at that same door. Uh, you can see how big it is. You know, there are hundreds of displays inside the ark that would keep you captive for hours. This one shows one of Noah's sons uh, in his personal quarters, relaxing, reading a scroll. Uh, here's another one, is a, in a, a compartment with uh, both uh, Noah's son and his wife. She's in the foreground uh, painting on some pottery, and, and he's playing a musical instrument in the back. And, you know, what I know about the flood, this kind of scene couldn't happen in the beginning. Maybe towards the end, when things were a little more calm, that might happen. But I also noticed that they had uh, displays showing Noah's uh, daughters-in-law's names. And I never saw the names in the Bible before, so I inquired, uh, wh where do you come up with the names of these women? And apparently there are extra-biblical historical sources that give the names of Noah's wife and their daughters-in-law. But you might ask, well, what about all the animals? And you know, for those of you who haven't been there, they really have done an amazing job uh, making these animals look real. I mean, they are first class. Um, this one, you know, I don't know exactly how to say it, maybe parasaur uh, kind. Um, I noticed there was a big emphasis on animals that we normally don't see or animals that are extinct, uh, including uh, these flying reptiles. Apparently, they haven't even been named yet, uh, but they do come from the uh, istiodactyl kind. And as we look further, oh, finally, there was something a little more familiar, uh, a pig or a boar. And you'll notice on the name plaque, it says the pig kind. Because remember, the genetic information was in the original pair that produced all the others in that family. And that way, you could get them all on the ark. And like I mentioned to the kids, from the little house cat to the 600-pound tiger, all came from one pair. You'll notice uh, this is a cage, and they had many different sizes of cages for all different kinds of animals. 
uh, you notice there's kind of a big water jug that's pointed into a trough that's, that's giving water to both cages on either side. And it's kind of hard to see because the picture kind of cut it off. But under the cage, there's a couple of little carts that uh, collected the waste, and then they could be trucked to another part of the ark uh, for disposal. There was also areas of food storage, massive quantities of food. You think about the food required for over a year for all these animals. They had to take plenty of provisions. A, a, a thought that I had is, how did they preserve all that food? And I really don't know. But they had some way. Um, they even had a display of a little greenhouse type thing so that the people could grow some fresh, fresh veggies. You know, I don't know if uh, at, or, uh, Moses, not Moses, got the wrong person. Noah and his wife and family, uh, if they grew stuff on the ark, but it's certainly feasible. And here was a bunch of containers for liquid. I don't know what liquids they might have uh, kept on the ark besides water. And there was another display on making moths. Now, who would have thought making moths or producing moths? Well, apparently some of the reptiles needed moths for food, and so they had a way of uh, producing moths as a food source. Um, this is uh, my wife standing with our friends uh, Raylene and Mark from Ohio, and they're actually here today. Uh, glad you could be here. And <clears throat> they went with us on this trip. You might notice these cages. They're a little smaller, but on the bottoms underneath the cages, are slatted or slotted uh, boards that uh, would direct the waste into a common channel so it could be more easily collected. Um, this, is a, this is a picture of the ark under construction. And, you know, we're not given details in the Bible. All we're told is that it had three decks, it had a door, and at least one window. And we're given the basic dimensions of the ark. But all the details, we don't really know. But this bow on the boat would uh, break up the energy from a wave, disperse that energy so that you could have a more stable ride. What we do know is that this kind of design showed up on ships after the flood, so it's reasonable to assume that maybe Noah did employ it. Because... Who was the designer of the ark? It wasn't Noah. It was God. And God knew what was needed for them to survive the flood. Um, this is actually a picture of a model. Uh, and you'll notice that it's not really correct because it's not finished, or the construction's not finished, but there's already animals going up the ramp into the ark. But the reason I pulled this picture is uh, to show you the stern. In other words, that big hard sail. Now, I forgot to bring down my model upstairs in a storage room. I have a model that I was going to show you and I forgot to bring it down. But you can see this hard sail. Now, why would you have that in the design? Any ideas? It's like a, a weather vane. In other words, if you had a crosswind hitting that arc on the side, it would tend to steer it so that the, the bow would be directed right into the waves. Much easier to deal with waves than if they were hitting you broadside. 
So again, we don't have that detail in the Bible. Um, there's something else that is an intriguing idea that we don't know for sure, and that is the idea of drag stones. Now, this is a stone that exists near Mount Ararat, and you'll notice the hole in the top of the stone. That was for a large rope. And if you had a number of these stones hanging from the ship, it would help stabilize the ship in rough seas. They would act like shock absorbers. So when a big wave would come, it wouldn't rise up in the water as fast. So it would have a stabilizing effect. This particular stone has some petroglyphs. You can see maybe some crosses on the face of that particular stone. To help you understand, here's a picture or a drawing that someone did where these uh, stones are hanging uh, from the ship. Now this doesn't make sense if you're trying to go somewhere, but if you're just trying to keep stable, it makes sense. Maybe they did have drag stones to stabilize uh, the ship. Um, here we see a comparison of uh, different ships that are pretty well known. Uh, the ark itself was 510 feet long, 51 feet high, and 85 feet wide. What we do know at this, that this particular ratio is most stable on the open seas. Now, some have said that the story of Gilgamesh was before the Bible was written, and it influenced the Bible's uh, story of the flood. But in the Gilgamesh story, the ark was a cube. Now, how would a cube survive on the open sea? It would tumble and turn. It wouldn't work at all. But here in the Bible, we're given the ratio uh, of length to width to height that is most stable. It makes our story more believable than the Gilgamesh story. Well, the ark in uh, Kentucky had many intriguing ideas from uh, water collection systems to collect rainwater to replenish their fresh water supply. Uh, there was all, all kinds of stuff, some of which I don't remember, some of which they didn't allow you to take pictures of. But something that intrigued me was a moon pool. Does anyone out there know what a moon pool is? Not a single hand. Oh, maybe one. Okay, a moon pool, think of it, oh, there we go. Here, let's raise it up so people can see. Now, a friend of mine back home um, made several of these. Now, he lives uh, near Portland, Oregon, and he was, uh, well, he volunteered. I was going to say he was commissioned, but he volunteered to do a number of carvings for the ark in uh, Kentucky. And uh, I didn't put it on the screen, but he carved a dove uh, to symbolize the dove that Noah released. And this dove is coming out of a, a tree stump uh, in, in the wood carving. But he also made some models, and he gave me one. Um, and I, I've really appreciated that. But here you can see the hard sail. Um, but back to the moon pool. Think of it as an elevator shaft in the middle of the ship somewhere that goes all the way to the bottom and doesn't have a, a, a floor. In other words, it's open to the sea. So every time the ark is bobbing up and down, 
the level of the water inside the shaft goes up and down. And that would have the effect of pumping air in and pumping air out of the ark. You know, it could get pretty stale in there with all those animals. So getting some fresh air would be a good thing. Um, you know, there's many other features that we could discuss. But, you know, the most important reason for even looking at this is why did God destroy his beautiful creation? You know, God, at the uh, end of creation, he stepped back. And he said, God saw everything that he had made, and indeed it was very good. So the evening and the morning were the sixth day. But it wasn't long, and Adam and Eve's sin changed all that. You know, even with Adam and Eve's sin, um, the, the curse hadn't taken full effect. And the earth was still very beautiful. But Satan was successful at instilling a spirit of rebellion in Cain. And we know the story. Uh, Cain and Abel brought their sacrifices to God. And uh, Cain, he brought the best of his fruit and veggies, uh, the best of his produce to the altar. But God didn't want the best of anything that Cain could produce, not his artwork, not his furniture, uh, Nothing Cain produced was what God wanted. God wanted a lamb. Why did God want a lamb? The lamb was a symbol, was a, an object lesson for when Christ would die in our place. And God wanted to impress upon their minds uh, what happens when there is rebellion against God. So God sent fire to consume the lamb that Abel had brought. And this infuriated Cain because God did not burn up his offering of fruits and vegetables or things that he had produced. His anger or this seed of rebellion turned into anger sufficient that he actually killed his brother Abel. The descendants of, uh, well, actually, we know that there was pressure on Cain to leave because he had killed his brother and there was tension in the family. So Cain moved his family away from uh, Adam and Eve and the other brothers and sisters that he had. Um, now, you might, uh, you might think that over time, the descendants of Adam and Eve and Seth and the brothers and sisters would want to evangelize and uh, bring uh, Cain's family back into the fold. But what does the Bible say really happened? Now, it came to pass when men began to multiply on the face of the earth and the daughters were born to them that the sons of God saw the daughters of men that they were beautiful and they took wives for themselves of whom they chose. I guess Solomon wasn't the first one to try evangelism through marriage. But, you know, um, I, some people have used this text to indicate that angels had relations with men and, and made this super race. But that isn't true. Because if you go to Matthew 
22, verse 30, uh, Jesus says that angels don't marry. In other words, they don't have physical relations like humans do. And the Lord said, My spirit shall not strive with men forever, for he is indeed flesh, yet his days shall be 120 years. Now, I used to think that this was the new norm for man's longevity. No longer would he live to be 900 years old, but he would only live 120 years. But, you know, I've come to realize through my study that God was actually predicting when the flood would come. He was giving man 120 years. He was giving a warning that uh, man should be ready. The Lord saw how great the wickedness of the human race had become on the earth and that every inclination of the thoughts of the human heart was only evil all the time. The Lord regretted that he had made human beings on the earth and his heart was deeply troubled. You know, it's hard for me to imagine God being deeply troubled. You know, I suspect that man had it too easy. Before the flood, there was a greater magnetic field to protect us from anything that may be coming from outer space. There was... Uh, a greater oxygen concentration, a little bit more oxygen in the air we breathe, and twice the atmospheric pressure. Well, so what? Well, those in the medical field, of, uh, and maybe some of the rest of you have heard of hyperbaric chambers. Hyperbaric chambers uh, have shown amazing results with healing. Uh, putting a person under conditions of twice the atmospheric pressure and a little greater concentration of oxygen, the body heals in hours when it may take weeks otherwise. So it's no wonder that man did so well. The ground was productive, even though it was cursed, it was way more productive than it is today. Um, you know, and we, have, we might have a hard time comprehending men living to be 900 years old. That's, that's just a long time. But if we go back in history, Martin Luther nailed his 95 Theses to the door of the church a little over 500 years ago. And if you didn't hear of Martin Luther, what about Christopher Columbus? He is said to discover the, America, the Americas a little over 500 years ago. And man before the flood was living 900 years. It's almost incomprehensible. But under those ideal circumstances, men lived a long time. So God came up with a plan, and starting in verse 7, it says, <clears throat> I will wipe from the face of the earth the human race I have created, and with them the animals, the birds, and all the creatures that move along the ground. For I regret that I have made them. But Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. And you might think, as many critics of Christianity think, well, why serve a bloodthirsty God? I mean, how can you explain that? It, God must be vindictive and bloodthirsty to wipe everything out. Well, you know, maybe some of you have struggled with that, and, and uh, I'll share with you an illustration. Not far from my house, there was uh, a field, and I, I don't know, I, I guess maybe about 40 acres of Christmas trees. 
I don't know, uh, I haven't spent enough time down here in Tennessee to know if they have Christmas tree farms, but they do in the Northwest. We have Christmas tree farms, and uh, there was about 40 acres of these Christmas trees, and I think it was late September, maybe early October, they started cutting them down. And I thought, well, that's crazy. It, these trees aren't going to last till Christmas. And they just continued. Every time I passed by, there was more. They were cut down, and they put them in big piles. And I thought to myself, well, that's crazy. If they're going to develop this land and put houses or something on there, why don't they just wait a little longer? They could have made a lot of money even selling these Christmas trees at a bargain price. Well, uh, as I continued to watch, they cut them all down, made these big piles, and burned them. And you know what? That was several years ago, and that land is still barren, meaning they haven't built anything, they haven't planted anything, and I thought to myself, well, why? And I asked around, and, and someone finally told me, well, they got infested, and they had to cut them down. This earth was infested with sin, and God had to restart. Otherwise, nothing would have existed. Um... Continuing on in Genesis 6, verse 11, the earth was also corrupt before God, and the earth was filled with violence. So God looked down on the earth, and indeed it was corrupt, for all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. And God said to Noah, The end of all flesh has come before me, for the earth is filled with violence through them, and behold, I will destroy them with the earth." Have you ever wondered why God used a flood? I mean, really, God had made this earth. It was near perfect. The ground was fertile. There was beautiful trees. There was pastures. I mean, it was a beautiful place. Hard to imagine how beautiful it was. Why would God choose a flood to wipe all that out? I mean, couldn't he have sent a plague and caused all the wicked people to die and, and then uh, saved Noah and, and he wouldn't have had to build an ark? I mean, why would God choose a flood? Well, I think Satan has been trying to brainwash us uh, into think that the layers of the earth took millions of years to form because all those fossils in the ground in all those layers testify of what happens when man rebels against God. Eventually, there is a day of reckoning. And so that testimony should tell us we need to be prepared to face our Creator. Uh, but Satan has done a masterful job, really, of brainwashing humans to think that it took a long time to put all those layers and deposit all those fossils. God has used his prophet Noah uh, to tell people that the flood was coming. I mean, uh, he spent 120 years building the ark and uh, sharing. And, you know, I believe that the ark was probably quite a spectacle. In other words, people would come and think to themselves, why would a human take so much of his resources to build this foolish thing? Uh, I mean, an ark? What, what purpose would that be for? So I imagine there were tours that came by to see the progress of the ark 
And I, I can imagine Noah standing out there, giving them a firsthand tour, inviting them to come into the ark when it was time. And I suspect initially there were quite a few people that were intrigued and thought, wow, you know, maybe this Noah knows something. But, you know, they went their own ways of self-indulgence. And they forgot about the warnings. And just like Pharaoh in Egypt, eventually their hearts were hardened. But eventually, all was in place. In other words, the food was loaded. The tools were loaded. And, and if you think about it, if you were commissioned to build the ark today, what would you put on the ark? I mean, maybe computers, maybe solar panels. You know, who knows what we might try to include. I suspect that Noah included the tools and technology and information uh, that he could think of to carry them through this ordeal. But finally, all was in place. And God said it was time. But what triggered the flood? We don't know exactly. Uh, some say maybe it was a meteorite hit the earth, cracked the crust, and caused the flood. Maybe God just pointed his finger and cracked the crust and started the flood. It's kind of interesting, there's a guy in Montana named Mike Ord who has studied the Ice Age for 40 years, and I'm going to be sharing more uh, about that information this evening that I think is pretty fascinating, and I think you will too. But Mike Ord, uh, he, he says that there are many craters around the earth, but we don't recognize them as craters because they are filled with sedimentary material so it smoothed them out so it's possible that maybe God used a meteor shower to begin the flood in the 600th year of Noah's life in the second second month the 17th day of the month on that day all the fountains of the great deep were broken up and the windows of heaven were opened and the rain was on the earth 40 days and 40 nights. You know, most people focus on the 40 days and 40 nights, but I, the rain that took place, but the key is the fountains of the deep. In other words, the earth crust cracked and the water that was trapped under the crust came blasting out. And the initial rain on the earth was that water returning back to the earth. Uh, there's a special Hebrew word for that rain. It's, it's not a typical rain, not like we experience here, because it was horrendous. In fact, uh, I believe the commentator on the Old Testament in her book, Patriarchs and Prophets, was inspired when she wrote, Then the fountains of the great deep were broken up, and the windows of heaven were opened, Water appeared to come from the clouds in mighty cataracts. Rivers broke away from their boundaries, and they overflowed the valleys. Jets of water burst from the earth with indescribable force, throwing massive rocks hundreds of feet into the air, and these, in falling, buried themselves deep in the ground. The flood was a violent event. It would make a hurricane like a picnic. I mean, it was incredible. She goes on to say, as the violence of the storm increased, 
Trees, buildings, rocks, and earth were hurled in every direction. The terror of man and beast was beyond description. Above the roar of the tempest was heard the wailing of people that had despised the authority of God. Satan himself, who was compelled to remain in the midst of the warring elements, feared for his own existence. She continues on. Some in their desperation endeavored to break into the ark, but the firm-made structure withstood their efforts. Some clung to the ark until they were borne away by the surging waters of their, or, or their hold was broken by collisions with rocks and trees. The massive ark trembled in every fiber as it was beaten by the merciless winds and flung from billow to billow. The cries of the beasts within expressed their fear and pain, but amid the warring elements, it continued to ride safely. Angels that excel in strength were commissioned to preserve it. Man, talk about a wild ride. You know, uh, Debbie and I uh, are going on our first cruise this summer. And... Uh, the reason I'm going is there's a guy named Bruce Malone who is a creation speaker. I mean, that guy is incredible. One year he said he, he set a record 400 presentations in one year. Now you do the math. That's a lot of presentations. But at any rate, Bruce Malone, uh, not a Seventh-day Adventist, is uh, going to be uh, one of the leaders on this cruise, at least for this group and is going to be giving us presentations every day. But when, we, uh, when I made reservations on this cruise, I selected a room that was in the middle of the ship. So when there's this and this, we're gonna be as good as possible. <clears throat> Not like Noah's Ark. I mean, it, it was incredible to be flung around like that. The author continues, it often seemed to the family within the ark that they must perish, as for five long months their boat was tossed about, apparently at the mercy of wind and wave. It was a trying ordeal, but Noah's faith did not waver, for he had the assurance that the divine hand was upon the helm. You know, and my son is now 30, and when he was about five years old, my wife decided we needed to go whale watching. Sounds like a romantic idea. We need to go whale watching. So uh, we went to a place that wasn't too far from where we lived, a place called Westport, and she had made arrangements uh, to go on this pretty good-sized boat. I, I used to know the dimensions, but I've forgotten. It seemed like it was probably about a 75-foot-long boat, so it wasn't a little thing. And um, <clears throat> we went out of the harbor, well, actually, we went out of the marina into the harbor called Gray's Harbor. And the water was pretty peaceful. But it just so happened that the whales were in the area that there was giant waves. I mean, it was peaceful all the way around, but somehow, because of the bar at the entrance to this harbor, the waves got accentuated. So here we are in this, in this boat, and we would go down into a trough and then up on the wave. And, and literally, this big boat would get buried down in the trough. And you'd see the water way up there. And I'm thinking, wow, this is pretty amazing. And my five-year-old son tugs at me and says, Daddy, Daddy, I got to go potty. 
okay, you know, I was doing my best to watch uh, and, and try to not get sick. Because if, if you're outside and you know what's going to be happening, there's not that confusion in your brain that makes you get sick. So that's what I was trying to do. But I had to take my son into this little closet. And it, as I recall, it was only about two feet square with a toilet in it. And so I took him in there, and we're just bouncing around. I thought, oh, my, I don't want him spraying all over the place. So I, I, got a, I held, him, held him as firm as I could, and I'm kind of bouncing from wall to wall. And, and I, I think we were successful at getting the right spot. And, and, and we finally got to come out of there. And, oh, man, was I sick. I, I, I concentrated real hard not to throw up and feed the fish. <clears throat> And I was in there maybe a minute. I can't imagine being in the ark for five months with that kind of stuff going on. It's just hard to comprehend. As the waters began to subside, the Lord caused the ark to drift into a spot protected by a group of mountains that had been preserved by his power. These mountains were but a little distance apart, and the ark moved about in this quiet haven and was no longer driven by the boundless ocean. This gave great relief to the weary, tempest-tossed voyagers. You know, maybe that's when they could paint on pottery and sit in their quarters and read. <laughs> you know, there's never been a, a flood, a reshaping flood like the Bible's flood. And in the Hebrew language, there is a special word for this flood that is only used in reference to the flood in Genesis. And there's another spot in Psalms that that same word is used, but it's in reference to the Bible's flood. It was traumatic. And this word is mabul. It's kind of fun to say. Say it with me. Mabul. Try it again. Mabul. You know, we, we have a, a New Testament word that is kind of similar, not in sounding, but in meaning, and that is uh, cataclysmos. And cataclysmos is the word that we get our word cataclysm. Cataclysm means a, a violent or large-scale event. Let's go to Matthew and see what Jesus said about this situation uh, we read Jesus' words. It says, But in the days of Noah, or as in the days of Noah were, so also will be the coming of the Son of Man be. For as in the days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage until the day that Noah entered the ark, and did not know until the flood came and took them all away, so also will be the coming of the, or will be the, coming of the Son of Man. Uh, Jesus talked about the people who warned the ignoring, or war, ign try it again, ignored the warnings that were given to get on the ark. They were interested in pursuing their own things, their own affairs. The Apostle Peter wrote that judgment is coming and we need to be ready. The Apostle Peter cites some examples to let you know that when God says something, he means it, and he will carry through. So let's look at 2 Peter 2, 
where it says, For if God did not spare the angels who sinned, but cast them down into hell and delivered them into chains of darkness to be reserved for judgment, and did not spare the ancient world, but saved Noah, one of eight people, a preacher of righteousness, bringing in the flood on the world of the ungodly, and turned the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah into ashes, condemning, condemning them to destruction, making them an example to those who afterward would live ungodly, and deliver righteous Lot, who was oppressed by the filthy conduct of the wicked. Then the Lord knows how to deliver the godly out of temptations and to reserve the unjust under punishment for the day of judgment, and especially those who walk according to the flesh in the lust of uncleanliness and despise authority. They are presumptuous, self-willed. Peter says that if there is something God says, you can trust that it will come about. Even, it's, even if it's severe judgment. A little later, Peter goes on to say, but knowing this first, that scoffers will come in the last days, walking according to their own lusts, and saying, where is the promise of his coming? For since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning of creation. For this they willfully forget, that by the word of God the heavens were of old, and the earth standing out of water and in water, by which the world that then existed perished, being flooded with water. Peter says, you need to get ready, because it is coming. But the heavens and the earth, which are now preserved by the same word, are reserved for fire until the day of judgment and perdition of ungodly men. But, beloved, do not forget this one thing, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years and a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some count slackness, but is long-suffering towards us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. God wants everyone to be saved. He doesn't want to lose any of you. You know, there was a man named Harry Truman, not the president. Up in my neck of the woods, there was a guy named Harry Truman. Now, Harry Truman was born in 1896. He lived through World War I, World War II, uh, through the Korean conflict and Vietnam. He per personally witnessed many things come and go. And he was the owner and or caretaker of a lodge at Mount St. Helens in Washington State. He is a buried man not under six feet like most of us would be buried if we died, but he is buried under 150 feet of pyroclastic flow that came from Mount St. Helens. Just two, well, he was warned by his friends. He was warned by state workers. He was warned by federal workers. Even Mother Nature warned him with, with earthquakes telling him the big one was coming. 
but he was self-sufficient. He said, ah, there's a whole forest of trees between me and the mountain. I'm okay. I don't need to worry. He scoffed, but you know, his lake of fire came early. Two weeks after the eruption, the, the ground above where he was buried ranged from 500 to 70 to 790 degrees. Incredible. Harry Truman relied on his own experience, and he did not heed the warnings. God has provided a way for our salvation, and he has provided warnings. He invites us to go through that door, just like Noah and the animals went through that door on the ark. Also in Revelation 14, at the close of time, God tells us or gives us another warning. It says, Then I saw another angel flying in the midst of heaven, having the everlasting gospel to preach to those who dwell in the earth, to every nation, tribe, tongue, and people, saying with a loud voice, Fear God and give glory to him, for the hour of his judgment has come, and worship him who made heaven and earth, the sea and the springs of water. This is God's warning to us that we need to focus on God and follow him uh, for our salvation. You know, the Greek word that is translated springs of waters really isn't an accurate translation. I mean, this, this sounds like a wonderful thing, springs of water, a bubbling water coming up out of the ground, nice animals uh, going for this water. But really, it should be translated uh, jets or geysers. It's a reference to the beginning of the flood, that God is a God that can be trusted. If he says it's going to happen, it's going to happen. So we need to be ready. But finally, there comes a time, just like uh, with Noah, there comes a time when the door is shut. And in Revelation 22, it says, He who is unjust, let him be unjust still. He who is filthy, let him be filthy still. He who is righteous, let him be righteous still. He who is holy, let him be holy still. There's a clear distinction between those who are out of the ark and those who are in the ark. And Jesus says in John 10, 9, I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved. Jesus and his grace is the only means to salvation. In today's world, there's been an emphasis on, even in the Christian community, to indicate that these Old Testament stories are just myths. That's another one of Satan's attempts to distract you, to help you, or to make you believe that God really isn't who he says he is and doesn't do what he says he'll do. Then finally in John 14, 6, Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. I want to be in heaven. How about you? 